Welcome to the Visegrad Insight Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Welcome to Visegrad Insight Podcast. My name is Albin Sibera. I'm a foresight editor at Visegrad Insight. And today I'll be talking to uh, assistant professor at the University of Ljubljana at the Faculty of Social Sciences, uh, Fadis Kochan. Welcome. Hi. And we will be talking about the latest developments, uh, particularly in Bosnia and uh, Herzegovina. Uh, I should also mention Professor Kochan has a, a forthcoming book, uh, Identity, Ontological Security and Europeanization in Republika Srpska, which, uh, which is forthcoming as part of a Central and um, uh, Eastern uh, European um, book series. Uh, Mr. Kochan, uh, when we look at uh, last week's EU report on enlargement, how do you interpret the conditional yes or uh, so-called conditional yes to open the accession talks uh, with the with BIH? Uh, do you see it as a more of a uh, protraction, or do you see it as a as a as a nod to uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina being uh, the most advanced of um, the Western the group of uh, Western Balkan states? Or is, 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 would you interpret it in a totally different way? Yeah, I would say that maybe the, the report is somehow in the middle ground, you know, because as you could see or we could observe, of course, um, there was on one, on one side the geopolitical reality of the Western Balkans and of course Bosnia and Herzegovina besides Kosovo being the one that is still not an official candidate and trying within uh, this um, conditionality paradigm. But on the other hand, you could see some reservations also from the Western European countries, such as, of course, uh, the Netherlands being at the forefront, arguing that Bosnia and Herzegovina didn't do enough to get this, of course, the green light, and then, of course, the, the status where Bosnia can start with the negotiations process. So you could observe this middle ground. So reflected upon Bosnia and Herzegovina being the potential security vacuum, of course, one part being now the, the infamous uh, Miura Dodik and Republika Srpska, and on the other hand, uh, the idea of that the Western Balkans has to be integrated, right, within the European integration and the perspective, and the European perspective has to be, um, of course, solid and consolidated and have this robust ground, because, of course, for the past 20 years, we could observe how, you know, promises were made and how promises would be broken, and this status quo somehow negatively impacted the whole perspective. Of course, Bosnia and Herzegovina, due to its very highly, I wouldn't say controversial, but very complex political system, is in a deadlock, and this deadlock cannot be probably broken without, you know, strong uh, reform incentives that, of course, derive or stem from the official Brussels. So I would say that Bosnia and Herzegovina did something in the past two years or in the past year or so. You have a new government on the state level, you have a new government on the level of the Federation of BIH. Of course, Republika Srpska always had a government due to different logic of uh, political constellation, but those are some steps that actually allowed Bosnia and Herzegovina's politicians to accept certain laws. So it's in, on a good path, and you could also see that Ursula von der Leyen actually acknowledged that, but there are certain kinds of problems that Bosnia still needs to address. So I would say a conditional yes. And of course, we should always uh, refer to that. It's just, you know, the green light is just the start of negotiations. The negotiations as such are going to be very tough and very hard for Bosnia and Herzegovina's political leader. 
And you've mentioned uh, infamous Milo Radodic. Um, over the past year, yeah. we, we, we've seen a uh, uh, couple of uh, what I would perhaps describe as, uh, as, as, as novelties or groundbreaking uh, moves that we haven't seen in the past, including the sanctioning of Milo Radodic uh, inclu- and uh, his, his surroundings. Um, in, in the recent uh, Schmidt report, uh, the, the uh, high commissioner uh, singled out uh, Milo Radodic's actions. Do you think in light, and you also are mentioning the, the, the geopolitical international relations intricacies in the region and in the wider region, uh, do you think perhaps uh, uh, Dodi could get further entrenched uh, in, inside the, the, the intricate, uh, already intricate uh, uh, structures of, of, of Bosnia and Herzegovina and could further uh, derail the process, or do you think that there is a there is a uh, there are tools to bring this to 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 closer to the accession and and, and to some kind of a positive denouement in in vis-a-vis the EU? I always tend tend to be cynical when talking about Milorodovic because he's like an open book, you know. It he from two thousand and eight two thousand and nine onwards, his lines or political sentences or stances. The such are very much aligned with what he actually wants to, to see in Bosnia and Herzegovina amidst, you know, the European integration or Bosnia and Herzegovina within the Euro-Atlantic integrations. He wants, of course, the office of the High Commissioner to be, you know, not present in Bosnia and Herzegovina. He always tends to play on this card of Bosnia and Herzegovina being a protectorate because of the office of High Commissioner or High Representative. And this is not only because of Schmidt, it was also when Insko was here. So I would say that Milo Radovic is very transparent in his ideas of what Bosnia and Herzegovina should look like amidst, you know, the growing presence of international relations. And it didn't, it didn't actually move away from, uh, we, we had, you know, prudent Butmir processes in 2009 and 2010, when you had this process of constitutional reforms in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The same was when you had the referendum on the day of Republika Srpska, so 2015 and 2016. And then he just, you know, tries to see uh, the final light and that the office of the high representative is, should be demolished, abolished, you know, not present in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So he's fairly consistent in that. But when you talk about the European integration or the membership in the European Union, he's more of a soft spot, you know. He's not against the European Union. He's not against the membership of Bosnia and Herzegovina. He's just against, of, you know, being some, some kind of a protectorate, you know, and having, you know, um, foreign uh, constitutional judges having this key where international community is ever present within Bosnia and Herzegovina. So he's somehow uh, transparent in that. And then, of course, in essence, when you see what he does and how he actually breaches the rules of the, the Dayton Agreement or the constitutional framework of Bosnia and Herzegovina, it is as it is, you know, because, of course, the, the office of the high representative and their laws that could be imposed, of course, have to be followed by both Republika Srpska and Federation of Bih. And he, of course, tends to demonize this office and tends to, you know, not be aligned with those imposed uh, laws. And that's why, you know, we are in this spiral of Milo Radodic said that, Milo Radodic said this, you know, and th- this is probably the biggest problem in Bosnia and Herzegovina because everything tends to be instrumentalized because those ideological stances in, by the political elites in Bosnia and Herzegovina tends to be instrumentalized into a dimension that is actually not comprehensible 
not just by the people living in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because when you talk with the people in Bosnia and Herzegovina, they don't see, they don't actually live by that ethnopolitics as Dodik, Izetbegovic, or Chavic tend to, to portray, right? But they, they don't see any other politician or any other option political, right? That could be represented on the level of Bosnia and Herzegovina or Republika Srpska or Federation of Big. There are no alternatives. That's probably the biggest problem in the region, not just in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but those alternatives are so disinstitutionalized, so sporadic, you know, so not having uh, adequate platforms. And that's why, you know, they tend to portray, okay, so if we are not going to vote for Dodik, then somebody else is going to come and he's not going to protect the interest of Republika Srpska, so we have to vote for Dodik. And of course, if you have Dodik, then the Bosniaks would say, okay, so we potentially have social democrats that can be alternatives, but they will not protect Bosniaks and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we have to vote for Izetbegovic or the party of democratic action. And of course, then you have the Croats who vote under the same pattern if they have, you know, Dodik and Izetbegovic, so we should actually vote for Chovic. And then you have this, you know, constellation when everything seems ethnopolitical, but you know, on everyday life, things are not as they look on that's on the political level. Looking at wider region, you can easily make parallels with this nationalist discourse that is being critical or or or, or even uh, anti-EU, I would say. And uh, whether we talk about uh, the Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban or or uh, the, the newly elected uh, uh, Slovak cabinet of Robert Fico, which also took a harsh stance towards the towards uh, towards the EU. Uh, or better, even closer, we, we look in, look at Serbia and, um, and, uh, the, uh, current government there, which is not shy of, of, uh, uh slamming, uh, EU as well. So would you say that in recent years, this sort of, uh, internalization of, of, uh, uh, highly critical nationalist discourse towards the EU has had a negative impact on, on the politics in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina or has, has it, not pl- or has it been exaggerated? I mean, we have to probably compare the two realities in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The first one being in federation, when you have mostly Bosnia Croat community or Bosnia Croat population, here you could observe that more than 80% of support towards the EU membership. Of course, they are critical, but they tend to romanticize the European integration. Of course, the part with the Croats having in mind the Croatia being a member of the EU and what, you know, uh, fruits that they received. And then the Bosniaks, of course, seeing the European Union as a solution, right? So more than 80% of them tends to romanticize and support European integration. And then you have Republika Srpska with, of course, 50%, 50 plus percent of the support. But there, there it gets a bit, you know, a liminal, bit more critical. Of course, they. When you talk with the people, I did some focus groups and interviews in my my PhD and also for the previous projects where I talked with everyday citizens in the Republika Srpska. They of course acknowledged the fact that the European Union means prosperity, that the European Union means you know certain freedoms and rights. But they tended to get critical by saying, you know, but it's not on, only the milk and the honey. You know, look at the Germany. We have a lot of diaspora in. In other countries, they are not, you know, having 
so good standards you know they don't live you know in in big apartments they they have to fight they're just workers and they have to fight for their every day and maybe you know if european union would come in bosnia and herzegovina we would be you know second or third rated uh, citizens in this european integration so you could sense here this uh, critical stance that it's not so nationalistic of course you have a cohort of people that tend to portray on the idea that if you know, the European Union would be a reality for Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Republika Srpska as a political entity would cease to exist. It's a smaller percentage, but of course, the idea is that, you know, the current uh, constellation of the Dayton's agreement or the Dayton framework actually makes Republika Srpska as a political entity that can, of course, imagine its own statehood. And in being a part of the European Union, that would mean, you know, the centralization and the end of the political capabilities of Republika Srpska. This is, of course, to a certain extent also aligned to certain narratives that are visible in the political arena in Republika Srpska, primarily led by, of course, Milo Radovic to certain, you know, critical junctures when he tended to, you know, protect the idea of Republika Srpska not being aligned more within this Dayton framework. And then he played on that card. And of course, those narratives became sticky. I wouldn't say that it's massively spread. I would say maybe that 10 to 15 percent of the citizens in Republika Srpska think in that way, you know, better not be the European Union because that would mean the end of Republika Srpska. But I would say that 50% they see, you know, the benefits of being in the European Union. And of course, they tend, they wanted to have to see Bosnia and Herzegovina as an EU member state, right? But it, this is to a much lesser, a much lesser degree than in Federation of B. Now, going back to the EU enlargement report from last week, in your assessment, how much of an impact will the what I would refer to as uh, leapfrogging of, of Ukraine and Moldova uh, ahead of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina in, in, in the EU accession process, how much of an impact it could have on, on the internal politics in the country? Could it be seen as, as something mean, that the EU, that the, we're not the preferred uh, partner, that the focus is not on us, or that already we are the being the it's a demonstration that we are the second or, or third class uh, citizens of Europe? Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably probably a good punchline. So probably if Ukraine wouldn't happen, we wouldn't talk about the perspective in that regard. Because if you could observe the trajectory in the past 20 years, you could you could observe, you know, on one hand, the idea that the Western Balkans belong to the European Union. And of course, the Western Balkans is part of the European Union process. And on the other hand, you could observe certain kind of uh, resistance or trying to, to have this stabiliocracy and status quo. You know, when you talk about the relations between Western Balkans and the European Union. So I would say, if I could be a bit cynical, the European Union was saying that they do something in terms of the Western Balkans. And on the other hand, Western Balkans political elite were just, you know, talking the EU talk without real reform. So you could say, of course, that the Ukraine came handy for Bosnia and Herzegovina because they will probably in, in certain months or probably in one year receive that green light. Of course, that doesn't mean anything, but you need a, that kind of an external shock to give this green light. That's probably a bit scary because if you see the, the demands by the, the official Brussels, you know, the, the European Commission was very strict when it comes to the so-called 14 recommendations that it were, were issued to, to Bosnia and Herzegovina in 2019, right? And 
until previous year, they said, look, you've done only one recommendation. You have 13 recommendations more, right? So you could observe that, that it's some kind of a gift also for the Bosnia and Herzegovina. And because they didn't devote so much time and energy and maybe accept some unpopular decisions, you know, it somehow comes as a gift, you know, the gift they didn't deserve. But I could also flip that coin and say that maybe that's also a good signal for the citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina, because on one hand, we always say, okay, that's, that transformative potential of the European integration didn't, you know, manifest in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but it's also because they didn't see you know, the, the light in the end of the tunnel. And maybe, you know, if we now have this green light, then the citizens could also demand more from the political elite. So maybe we could say that this is actually putting some additional pressures to the political elite because now they are going to negotiate and now they need to have, you know, certain uh, progress made. And maybe that's also becoming, will become hopefully a part of the pre-election campaigns and not just who is more uh, Bosniak or Croat or Serb, but also what Bosnia and Herzegovina did and it's, you know, the, the reform incentives that they need to follow. Uh, this will be, you know, the European Union. If I may go uh, with one more question back to the uh, EU enlargement report. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, one of the one of the highlights was uh, that the state of um, of the freedom of the media in, in, in Bosnia Herzegovina was was described as backsliding. And now uh, it, it sort of prompts me to ask: uh, Wouldn't you say that, in a way, this could also be interpreted as a, as as a bit too harsh? In a, in a sense that does Bosnia Herzegovina have enough tools to actually control its media uh, landscape, being located next to the, uh, the sort of uh, you know Serbia and its and its and its and its uh, media apparatus backed by the state and obviously uh, its linguistic uh, proximity uh, or, or is it am I being uh, perhaps too harsh on the EU in this in, in my comment? Yeah, I would say that Bosnia and Herzegovina is not only a complex political system, but it's also complex when you try to assess where the laws lie or which laws do the entities living and functioning within Bosnia and Herzegovina have to abide, right? Of course, when we talk about the media regulation and the idea of Bosnia and Herzegovina as a country backsliding, they tend to refer to, to the Dodik, right? So to what happened in Republika Srpska when he tended, you know, to actually um, reflect upon the hate speech, right? And how um, trying to omit certain elements of the media freedom so that you cannot uh, talk and write about anything, right? So that's something probably that also, you know, negatively reflect in turn on Bosnia and Herzegovina as a framework, right? But that's also because we don't, actually understand fully the rate within which the laws function and to which law that um, the Bosnian Herzegovina and people living there have to abide, right? So, of course, you could observe that there are a lot of private media outlets. You have, of course, the state one, so radio, television, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then you have on the level of federation, and then you have on the level of Republika Srpska, but then you have a lot of private media entities that are even more influential than the public one. And of course, this is where you could somehow actually penetrate with capital, with, you know, um, opinion polls, with also the political elites, things like that. So, of course, this somehow becomes a bit more tricky when, you know, you don't
don't have consolidated subsystems. And of course, Bosnia and Herzegovina being a post-conflict country with a lot of, uh, you know, subsystems not functioning optimally, then you have, of course, rooms where you could actually violate or twist certain parts of freedom since you're just being in politics, so you could say, the party of democratic action or the, the leader leading Bosnia one and then of course the alliance of independent social democrats by Dodik and then the Croatian Democratic Union of course they were they are here for the past 20 years and you could you could observe that they somehow usurp the part of also the media sphere a part of intellectual sphere um, market sphere things like that so you could observe that you know, you work in liminal conditions where you don't know if that is public, is if that is private, to whom does it abide, to who does it conform. And of course, you, you have that also, as you mentioned, in, in Serbia and in other countries as well. You know, it's when you don't have transparency in terms of media ownership, if you don't have, you know, the, the lists of who is paid by whom, then you get, you know, the public sphere that is dominated by those who have the power, political power, cultural power, and of course, economic power. And of course, this is, this is probably one of the spheres where Bosnia and Herzegovina and all other countries in the Western Balkans will have to do more. You could also observe how Serbia is doing new law and media, and of course, certain parts are not in line with the European standards or the standards that are enshrined in other European Union countries. So probably this is where it will get messy and blurry, but because you know, if you own media, you own probably public opinion, and then you can massively win. It's not just, as you said, Slovakia, Hungary, or other countries, it's also uh, Serbia, and it's also, we could also observe that in Turkey, right? Because you, you saw that who own, owns the narrative wins the elections. Speaking of Serbia, can I go on uh, in the interview without asking you about the upcoming elections in Serbia on, on uh, D December 17th? I've recently spoken to a media analyst on the, on the Serbian media landscape and, and we've ended the conversation in a, a I would say, a, a bit dark way in, in that he was expressing hopes that it doesn't turn violent. What, do you think there would be a realistic chance of, of uh, overspilling the, the, the campaign in terms of uh, uh, social tensions and, and, uh, and harshening of, of, a, of a political narrative also over to Bosnia and Herzegovina? I mean, you could see this liminal space of sharing narratives, you know, throughout the region, not only via Republika Srpska and Serbia, but also certain parts of Montenegro. It's, I would say that it's somehow the same social space or tends to be portrayed as a very similar social or ontic space where you could see these shared narratives. Of course, um, what actually is very, very pertinent to both, you know, the political elites in Serbia and Republika Srpska is that they are somehow always in pre-election campaigns. You could also see that in, by, by Vucic and by Dodik, you know, they, they like, you know, elections and Vucic actually knows that he's not going to lose elections. So he likes to validate, you know, each time with more majority, each time with more percent. So it's always, you know, in this state of pre-election campaigns, this year we're going to do that, this year we're going to do that. It's a smart, you know, it's a very smart decision on his side because he, clearly understands the logic of the, the Balkan people, you know, the citizens living in the region, because, you know, they tend to be you know, inspired, you know, we say enough. And then, of course, if you could observe the economic prospect, you know, not, not in Republika Srpska, but in Serbia, for example, you could see the rise of 
the, the, the economic aspect of the people and they said, okay, so we're living better than 10 years ago, right? So why the opposition tends to instrumentalize the protests and the rallies and everything? Because a year ago they lost the elections and of course, if today there are going to be elections, Vucic will also win and Vucic knows that and that's why he's playing a very smart, you know, very good play. Uh, he has very good um, cards in his hand and of course he's again going to win and of course the, this narrative frames, frames that govern, you know, are practically the same and they tended to portray this authoritarian tendencies, of course, throughout the region, because we are looking for, you know, the natural leaders, you know, the one who can, you know, uh, bring this wagon in front, you know, there are a lot of geopolitical tensions, a lot of issues and challenges in the international community, and you want stability. And then you can also see that in Serbia, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, you could observe that also in Croatia. You know, you need this stable phase, the phase that you recognize, that you know, and that it's predictable, you know. And of course, Dodik and Vucic and other, they are in their unpredictability, they are so predictable. And people like that. Somehow, in a twisted, inverted way, they like that. They like this stability and know what they can get from both of the politicians. Uh, let me end this very quickly. We have only a few minutes left. Uh, with final question, uh, also uh, regarding um, one a major event on the international scene, which seems to be distant from, from the Western Balkans. That is the, the latest uh, violent flare-up in the uh, conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I've seen in, in Central Europe how a lot of uh, populist leaders, including Viktor Orban or Robert Fico of Slovakia that I've already mentioned, have, I would even say, in a way, jumped at this conflict and, and tried to play the, the anti-Islamic card, anti-terrorist card, and, and, and have, and have tried to, they've tried to harshen, uh, their, their political rhetoric. Uh, do, do you see any of this in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina? Do you, do you see how, how this in, in the, the present day of, of social media, how, how this conflict gets, gets closer even to, to regions that are not necessarily linked to it? Yeah, you could see that. You could also see that on, on some, you know, public houses or public infrastructure in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So, for example, in Banja Luka, you had this Israeli flag, for example, and in Sarajevo and Dietrich, you had this Palestinian flag. So, you, you could observe, you know, again, somehow polarized decisions or polarized opinions when it comes, you know, to who to supporting whom. But you could observe, you know, this, I wouldn't say, as you said it, so you said it correctly, you, you could not observe these kinship patterns, but you could observe this sense of, you know, um, being of the same, of same faith or something like that, not just of being of same religious faith, but also sharing the same faith, you know, because for the Bosniaks and for the Kosovars and for the part of the, uh, part of other people that were, in the wars, they, they actually sympathize or they're very tending to display this sympathetic um, outline towards the, the Palestinians. You know, we know how you feel, right? And that's also part of this imaginary. And of course, then you have this polarization on one hand, you know, um, Hamas fighting or Hamas attacking Israel. And then on the other hand, you know, millions, um, I mean, thousands of uh, innocent Palestinians killed, killed, right? Of course, children as well. So you could see that maybe it is coming to the forefront also the idea of this collective trauma that we can see that in the Balkans, you know, whenever you, you could observe a tank or an army or something, you know, in, for example, Bosnia and Herzegovina, people tend to, you know, um, see that trauma. And probably when they see, you know, 
hundreds of Palestinians, civilians or Israeli civilians, you know, hurt. You could also observe that they tend to sympathize with them and they know, we know how, how you feel. We felt the same way. So we could also uh, see it through this non-ethno-politicized lens, you know, because they were all in the war and they all suffered, you know, and you could see that, you know, because it's okay. You, we could say a lot of Bosniaks sympathize with Palestinians and on the other hand, others with Israelis. But if you talk with the everyday people or everyday citizens, no matter of their religious prefix or ethnicity, they sympathize with the civilians, you know, that were unjustly killed in those operations. And you could observe that, that they just want it to stop. And if you could also see that through the lens of how Vucic talks in the United Nations and in other forums, you could see, you know, that those positions are not as fixed as, for example, as official Banyaluka tends to portray. It's liminal because they see the suffering and they just want this, you know, to end and the peace to be installed. So, of course, citizens in the region tend to portray through their, you know, collective experience and collective trauma. Thank you very much. Our time is up. Uh, I look forward to talking more in the future and wish you all a very good day. Thank you. It was a pleasure.